from the University of Texas at Austin, KUT Radio. This is In Black America. It's a big job, man. You know, Vice President, uh, Division of Diversity and Community Engagement is the largest organization of its kind, not only in the space of higher education, but also in corporate America. Mm-hmm. You know, and the one thing about Texas, man, you know, that the politics here are different. You know, you, right. you know, you have you got black folks, you got Latino issues, you got immigration issues. It seems like everything, all the big time social issues seem to start on this campus. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, the guns issue, you know, it, and so right. it, 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 it's a great opportunity for us to do some dynamic things. I'm glad I have the support of President Greg Finvis. And um, I don't know, man, I just like being in the South. I think my style and personality, John, works good in the South, where I can just be straightforward with people and they may not like it, but to some degree they respect it. Dr. Leonard N. Moore, Vice President for Diversity and Community Engagement and Professor of History at the University of Texas at Austin. In 2007, Moore joined the faculty at UT Austin teaching classes in modern African-American history and the intersection of race, culture, and politics. Moore is a passionate educator. He has a unique and engaging teaching style. From 1998 to 2007, he was a history professor at Louisiana State University, where he directed the African and African-American Studies program and the Predoctorial Scholars Institute. Besides his administrative and teaching duties, he's also an author of three books, his most recent book is entitled The Defeat of Black Power, Civil Rights, and the National Black Political Convention of 1972. I'm John L. Hansen Jr., and welcome to another edition of In Black America. On this week's program, Dr. Leonard N. Moore, Vice President for Diversity and Community Engagement at the University of Texas at Austin, In Black America. Well, most people think of <laughs> diversity Particularly if you're not black or Latino, okay. most people think of diversity as them losing something. And so it's funny when I teach my MBA class and I got all these students that want to go work on Wall Street, I don't sell them on diversity as this is something they need to embrace for just for moral purposes. Mm-hmm. It's aspirational to them. I like, okay, you may not like Black Lives Matter. You may not like somebody in a gay marriage, but what if you at that Wall Street firm and the person making the most money is gay? Or what, or what, if, what if your boss... <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, at Wells Fargo or Bank of America walks in with a Black Lives Matter t-shirt on. You gonna quit? And so my challenge to them is that you don't have to agree with people's lifestyle, you don't have to like them, but you gotta respect everybody and respect their humanity. It is important to Dr. Lyndon Moore that as students look at the world beyond their narrow perspective. As the newly appointed Vice President for Diversity and Community Engagement at the University of Texas at Austin, he's in a unique position to do just that. Born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, Moore was not the sharpest pencil in the box, but that didn't stop him from achieving his goals. He earned a B.A. degree in history from Jackson State University and his Ph.D. degree from The Ohio State University. Joining the UT Austin faculty in 2007, Moore has gone on to make a name for himself on campus and around the country. His study abroad program in Beijing and Cape Town, South Africa, have become national models for diversifying global education. Moore has received numerous teaching awards, which include the John Warfield Teaching Award and the Gene Holloway Award for Excellence in Teaching. Moore recently stopped by the In Black America studio to discuss his new appointment, why teaching is important to him, and his new book. Man, it was amazing. It was a a community, about uh, 40% African-American, about 30% Orthodox Jewish, and 30% white. So if you walked out of my front door, 
within a within a 10 minute walk, there were five Jewish synagogues, a Jewish community center, two Jewish funeral homes, and an entire Jewish business district. You know, so my dad was uh, we were middle class. My dad was the first black IRS agent in Cleveland, Ohio. He worked with organized crime. My mom mm-hmm. was a stay at home mom. So we had we had a good upbringing, man. It was a lot of fun. Very diverse. Yeah. Brothers and sisters. Two older sisters, one eight years older than me, another one 10 years older than me. So I kind of grew up by myself. Yeah. You attended Ohio State first? And I went to Jackson State. Jackson uh, HBCU State in Jackson, Mississippi. Okay. I, you know, I, I came out of high school, John, with a 1.6 grade point average. Okay. And a 15 on the ACT. And so my <laughs> options were limited <laughs> mm-hmm. in Ohio. So my dad put me in a car and we went down to Jackson State. My dad, although he went to Case Western Reserve, but my, my dad, he understood that HBCUs could turn me around. Mm-hmm. And so I went to Jackson State, man, and had four great years, turned myself around academically, then went to Ohio State and got a PhD. Major at Jackson State? History. Why history? Man, John, if you, if you looked at that 1.6 GPA <laughs> high school transcript, the only class on there, okay. higher than a C, that wasn't gym, was African-American history. That's the only class I've ever loved, man. You know, and I didn't worry about how if I was gonna get a job in it. I would just figure I'd get a history degree and be a high school history teacher and be a good teacher. So, but God just has ways of working. What yeah. was some of the thing that really interested you when you were taking history? I don't know, man. Just basically connecting these dots of the past, and that's when I realized that the present is a product of the past. Okay. And I was wondering how come we didn't learn all this stuff in school? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? But it has always fascinated me, man. Yeah. Were there any particular events while you're growing up in Cleveland that really changed your thoughts about how America is? Uh, I don't know, man. I think I may have grew up a little bit kind of sheltered. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Not rich by any means. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? But I think kind of grew up maybe kind of sheltered. And so, you know, Cleveland has a big black middle class. Right, so we were right. surrounded by black excellence. You know, so there was no idea that we couldn't achieve, achieve stuff. Right. I laugh. You know, I, you know, I got a... Uh, undergrad degree, a master's degree, and a PhD. And I think after I got my undergrad degree, there was no big celebration. My master's degree, no big celebration. We went to like a little buffet restaurant. You know what I'm saying? Right. We celebrated a little bit when I got my PhD. But the expectation was all the kids are going to college. Once you attained your master's, you yeah. went on to your PhD at yeah. Ohio State. Why Ohio State? I don't know, man. Ohio, well, I'll say this. Ohio State had a good track record of getting black students in and out. Okay. And they had a pretty good program specializing in African-American history. Uh, and at the time, man, Ohio State had a vibrant black graduate professional community. Because at Ohio State, the dental school's on campus, dental school, vet school, med school, optometry school, law school, and they got a bunch of graduate programs. So, man, we it was like being at an HBCU again, but mm-hmm. all of us were in graduate school. So it was just it was just a great community, man. Once you graduated from Ohio, Ohio State, State uh-huh. your first job out of college? LSU. LSU. So it came down to LSU, University of Cincinnati, Clark, Atlanta. At Ohio, you want to get out of the Midwest? Or not what? really. I mean, at Ohio State, man, I, I did a lot of work with black athletes, tutoring them and all that kind of stuff, and began to realize that a lot of those brothers had issues off the field. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? And so I wanted to go to a place where I could impact that student-athlete population. And, and uh, I went to LSU. I flew to LSU, MLK Holiday in uh, 1998. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I left Cleveland. It was 20 degrees when I left Cleveland. <laughs> it was 75 when I got to Baton Rouge. It didn't take long to, to, to close that deal out. So I spent had nine great years at LSU. Being yeah. around athletes, do they get it as far as, you know, they have an athletic prowess, but right. also they need to understand that you need some brain power. Well, here's the deal, and, 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 and I tell college coaches this all the time. Fans and coaches are create the problem. Okay. Because when we go cre- recruit these young men and women, we aren't recruiting them for their intellectual abilities. We're recruiting them to play a sport. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And all the reinforcement they get 
is about the, their athletic ability. And then all of a sudden you want them to become good students. They're like, well, hold on a minute. You didn't bring me here to be a good student. So sometimes we unfairly blame them and we need to blame the adults who are making money off them. When you interact with those uh, individuals, did you all set up study Man, programs? I would have those brothers come to the house. Okay. I mean, I would have 10, 11 football players at Ohio State in my house with tutoring, but it became, uh, John, more about just uh, life coaching to yeah. a certain extent. You know, they would, a lot of those young men were depressed, thought they were going to the NFL, right. begin to realize it wasn't going to happen. Uh, and, you know, just imagine, you know, you've been doing something since you were seven or eight. You've been the best player in your hometown, mm -hmm. and now at 22 it's over. And so, you know, we call it identity foreclosure. You know, now at 23, you got to reinvent yourself. Right. And so, but uh, we, we had some good times and a lot of success doing that kind of work. 2007, you yeah. came to UT. What brought you here? Greg Vincent recruited me here. Okay. And um, I never worked for Greg at LSU. We worked together. I never worked for him. Mm -hmm. And he told me, man, he said, I need a dynamic professor on campus to move the needle. And he saw what I had done at, at LSU. So I came 07, man, and been here 11 years. Yeah. What was it about UT? Was there any trepidations? No, mm. I mean, I think, you know, you know, man, you know, John, you know my personality. I, I can be kind of confrontational. I, I, I can have a challenging personality. <laughs> okay. And I think it got to the point at LSU where it was time for me to go. <laughs> I mean, I was a tenured prof. They couldn't get rid of me. But, you know, you reach a point where that it was a good, it was a good, it was a good time to just depart. When you came to campus, what were some of the things, I'm quite sure, you know, Vincent had an idea what he wanted you to do, but some of the things that you wanted to try to achieve while you were here. I really wanted to really transform the undergraduate experience okay. through some dynamic courses. And so I teach a class called the Black Power Movement that has 500 students in it every fall semester. 300 students are white. And I teach another class called Race in the Age of Trump that has 500 students in it, 300 students are white. So I think he understood what I could do in terms of on-the-ground work with students and in the classroom. How has the reception been from the students teaching those classes? Awesome. I mean, the classes fill up in like a day or two. And and I think, John, the big, the big myth is that white students don't want to talk about race. They want to talk about it. And it's mm -hmm. funny, John, I think some of my most favorite students are some of these hardcore conservative kids. Mm -hmm. And what they'll tell you is that, you know, I don't agree with Dr. Moore on a lot but I'll take whatever class he teaches because Dr. Moore lets me share my opinion. And, you know, I'm a big defender of free speech. I'm a big defender of free speech. And so, uh, you know, we have some pretty, you know, pretty in interesting conversations in those classes. Yeah. Tell us about your new permanent position. It's a big job, man. You know, vice president, uh, Division of Diversity and Community Engagement is the largest organization of its kind, not only in the space of higher education, but also in corporate America. Mm -hmm. You know, and the one thing about Texas, man, you know, that the politics here are different. You know, you right. you know, you have you got black folks, you got Latino issues, you got immigration issues. It seems like everything, all the big time social issues seem to start on this campus. Mm -hmm. You know, the uh the guns issue. It's a great opportunity for us to do some dynamic things. I'm glad I have the support of President Greg Finvis and um I don't know, man, I just like being in the South because I think my style and personality, John works good in the South, where I can just be straightforward with people, and they may not like it, but to some degree they respect it. I didn't know there was 30 different programs under that umbrella. No, it's more than that. That was in my previous role. I mean, now we have about 400 employees. Okay, well. So we have a suite of on-campus programs, but off-campus we have a UT charter school system with about 28 charter schools across the state. UIL, the Athletic Association, mm -hmm. that reports to me. Okay. And then we off-campus, we also have a big mental health foundation. So in addition to everything on campus, there's a lot of stuff that, that, that branches out statewide. Obviously, with those numbers of employees, mm -hmm. you have to have a pretty competent staff. Yeah. We got some good people in place, but, you know, we'll spend the next year 
building the leadership team around my particular vision so that it lines up with President Greg Finvis. Over the years, UG has had a difficult time in attracting particularly African-American students. It's tough. The yeah. Hispanic population is is, is growing at yeah. a pretty steady pace. So, you know, what are your concerns, and what are you trying to do to rectify that 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 problem? Yeah, we we got to increase African American enrollment without a doubt. But but here is here here is, and I'll I'll lay out the scenario. So I'll look at my daughter for instance. So my daughter's at Round Rock High School, take all AP classes, but not in the top ten percent of her class. Okay. okay, great test scores, great GPA. So if my daughter applies, mm-hmm. let's say to Michigan or Stanford, or one of these elite private schools, she'll probably get in. But if she applies to UT, she may not because she's not automatic admit. And mm-hmm. then if she gets into UT, she may not get her major if it's business or engineering. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a tough deal, but we do have situations, John, where you know some African-American kids and Latino kids in Houston or Dallas, they may get in admitted to USC, may get admitted to Columbia, but won't get in here because it's just so competitive. So. You know, it, it's it's not an easy issue to solve, but we're going we gonna to try our best. When you look at the, the faculty, I'm quite sure that's probably under you all's umbrella. That's under Ted Gordon. Okay, so Ted then. Gordon, who used to chair Black Studies, mm-hmm. he's in the provost's office now as vice provost for diversity, and he's been charged specifically with faculty recruitment and retention. Okay. Mm-hmm. When you all go out to recruit students, either African-American, Hispanic, or, or whatever, what are some of the things you're trying to convey to these individuals to let them know that University of Texas will prepare you for whatever field you want to... So, so John, I typically to. visit about 35 high schools a year. Whoa. I, you know, I hit a Houston, Dallas, the Valley, and also, you know, Austin, a part of San Antonio. The one thing I convey to them, number one, I want them to go to college somewhere. Okay. So I'm just not in there pushing Texas. Texas. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that our job as the flagship institution has helped these kids go to college anywhere. And those that have an interest in UT, let's recruit them here. But a couple things I tell them, John, number one, it doesn't matter what you major in. (laughs) And some people disagree with that. Number two, they gotta get some global experience. And number three, I really believe one of the advantages of coming to college is not the coursework, it's the people you meet and the connections you make. So I try to stress those three things when I'm talking to kids. If you're just joining us, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr., and you're listening to In Black America from KUT Radio, and we're speaking with Dr. Lyndon Lynn Moore, Vice President for Diversity and Community Engagement at the University of Texas at Austin and also a professor of history. Dr. Moore, understand that a group of students, and you all just returned from Cape Town, South yeah, Africa? Yeah, man. So uh, we run a study abroad program in Cape Town, South Africa. It took about 81 students. About half of those students are the first person in their family to go to college. Okay. And I, w- I would suggest that uh, half of those students, first time they've been out in the country. And for about 25% of those students, first time some of them were on an airplane. Why was this particular endeavor important to you? Because, so John, when, when I come to UT, right, every morning, and I see wealthy kids driving BMWs and Teslas and Range Rovers and living in these condos. I mean, it's like we will working class kids will never be able to compete with the connections that those kids have. Right. Never be able to compete. So I was I'm always thinking about how can we give working class kids and poor kids a leg up? Mm-hmm. And the quickest thing I, I could think of was studying abroad. Because again, I wasn't a great student in high school and, and you know some kids not gonna get above a two five. Right. But that doesn't mean they, they aren't smart. So I realized, John, if I could give these kids some, create some great global internships, some great global experience. I know that's what employers want. Employers mm-hmm. want kids who can think, who can just work in ambiguity, who are creative, in, innovative, who just gonna figure it out. I knew if I could do that, these kids would have a leg up on the job market, and that's what we've seen. 
besides South Africa, they also go to China. China. Right, we do China. We also launched the Costa Rica program this year, two-week program, and I'm in the process of trying to launch a program in Sydney, Australia. Yeah. Why these two countries? So, so if you if you look at if you look at the global economy, there's an acronym BRICS: Brazil, mm-hmm. Russia, India, China, South Africa. Okay. Those five countries move the needle, and they say those five countries right there, in many ways, outside of the U.S., are really going to shape the global economy. And so we're in two of those countries. And so the goal is, John, we try to get these kids to come to those countries. We try to get the kids to come after their freshman year, after their sophomore year. So before they are a junior in college, when I look at their resume and I see the China internship written in Mandarin on the resume, and then they see the Cape Town internship either written in Zulu, Kosa, or Afrikaans on the resume, there aren't too many students across the country that can compete with that. And so when those kids hit the job market a year and a half later, it, it, uh, they, they, we believe they have a leg up. So how do students get in the, that, that program? They apply. And you know, and what makes our study abroad programs unique, we don't have any GPA requirements. I'm whosoever will, John. Because I know what it's like having a 1.6 and being disqualified from opportunities. But our growth, if you got a 2.0 at the time of application, mm-hmm. you know, as long as you're in good standing with the university, come on and go with okay. us. So how long do they stay and 30 then days. what type of curricular or activities they okay. participate in? So in Beijing, they, we, they take a class with me. We rent, we rent classroom space at a university okay. in Beijing. And in Beijing, they take a class with me uh, called uh, a class on social entrepreneurship. Because in China, there is no safety net. There is no welfare system in China. Mm-hmm. Okay. In Cape Town, we rent space at the University of Cape Town. And they take a class with me called Urban Economic Development. And so they're in class Monday, Wednesday, Friday. But then they have their internships on Tuesday and Thursday. Since coming to UT, what difference have you seen on campus? I mean, I mean, although we talk about the you know the black population being four and a half percent, I mean, when you walk around the campus, there is a significant presence of students of color. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Of course, you have a Latino population, but we also have students, good number of students from Asia, the Middle East. So I'm pleased at what I see when I walk on campus. But we do have to get African American enrollment up without a doubt. Besides all the other things that you're involved in you're also an author man i tell people john that i'm a professor first okay (laughs) vice president you know professor that's my identity you know and i i love chronicling the black experience so i always gotta keep writing yeah Yeah. but new book out of the defeat of black power you're talking about the civil rights and national black political convention of 1972 yes what led you to write about this I don't know because uh, my first couple books my first book dealt with carl stokes first black mayor Mm -hmm. cleveland and you know the rise of black political power. My second book dealt with uh, police brutality in New Orleans, and for the third book, man, I wanted to look at the the relationship amongst black people. Okay. Because there's this, I think people outside think that we're monolithic, monolithic. Right. but I tell people if you go to a black family house for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, you know we got a uh, black barbershop. Black barbershop, <laughs> right? You got black conservatives. You got some of everything up in there, and mm-hmm. so I really wanted to talk about you know these different black political ideologies. Why this particular event hasn't been covered and little has been said about it over the years, yeah. if at all. Because what happens when King dies in 68, mm-hmm. the movement splinters. Right. Into, and we don't have a lot written about the black 70s, period, if exactly. you think about it. But I don't know, man. It was just amazing because you had these two camps of people. You had these black elected officials who had been elected by black people from black districts but then you had the black nationalists who called themselves representing black people. So, you know, you got this convention coming together in 1972 where they're trying to create a strategy mm-hmm. in many ways to, 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 to give a compass for black life for the next 40 years. Did it work? 
it was a good effort. <laughs> it wasn't going to work. I mean, you got some people in the camp who talking about reparations, going mm -hmm. back to Africa, tearing the system down. And you got other folk talking about, no, we're going to work within the system. It's really hard to, to, to bring those two ideologies together. Looking at 2018, have we moved the needle? Man, I think we have a void in black political leadership and a okay. void in black activism. And there's a great book, man, called The Price of the Ticket, a brother wrote about the Obama administration. And what he's found, when you have black mayors elected, mm -hmm. when Obama was elected, black protest dies down. Because mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. say, Obama doing the best he can, don't make it bad for him, give him a chance. You know, so after eight years of that, you know, you really didn't have much black activism going on because we didn't want to make Obama look bad. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the state of black political activism is now. When you when you look at what's happening today, it seems that this country is, is, is splintered like it has never been before. Yeah, yeah. One thing I appreciate about our president is that he's honest and he's himself. Okay. That's a breath of fresh air. Mm -hmm. And and I don't, you know, you know, and some people say, you know, they like Trump because they know what they know what they're dealing with and they know how to strategize. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? But it's it's just very interesting. You know, it's it's very interesting. But some people said that, hey, you know, maybe this is who we really are as a country, you know, and I predict Trump will get reelected. When you look at the political climate, particularly here in Texas, but also here in Austin, it's unique. <laughs> it's and, very unique. And and you have stated before, you know, a lot of different dynamics and movement that takes place takes place here in Austin, but also takes place here in the, in the state of Texas. Right, and what's interesting about Austin, you have several, if, if we talk about just black Austin, mm -hmm. there are several camps. You got a black transplant camp that mm -hmm. I'm a part of. Most of us live out in Round Rock, Cedar Park, you know, mildly middle class, some even affluent. Mm -hmm. But then you have an older East Austin group who I would argue has been sort of left behind. Mm -hmm. And so what I have to remind the transplants, a lot of us who come in and get positions and get jobs, is that you know we have to remember that there were folks here before us who laid the foundation so we could come in, you know, and 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 become upwardly mobile. So that's the challenge I see in Austin. You got you know you got these two different camps, a new camp and an older camp. Why is it important for you and your department to be inclusive with the Austin community, knowing UT's history in the city? I mean, it has to. I mean, we have to. I mean, everything has to start there. And, and John, one thing we started a couple years ago. We do a lot of tours with high school kids and middle school kids, and we don't do them on Saturdays. Okay, I think I think a, I think a college tour on a Saturday is an architectural tour. You just looking at buildings. Buildings, right? What we do, we bring kids and they sit in classes. You know, right. and we demystify the whole college going experience, but also letting these kids know that UT is a tax supported institution and that they mm -hmm. have a place here. And you know, you hear a lot of, well, Doc, you at the white man's school and all that kind of stuff. And I have to remind people that you know, all kind of folk have paid taxes. <laughs> So that UT can operate. Yeah, so just open up the doors a little bit to the people from the community. Looking back at that one-point grade average and looking at yourself now, does it mystify you? I tell people, I just wasn't, <laughs> I just tell people, John, I wasn't engaged in the yeah. process of education, you know. But I think what it does, man, I have a great deal of empathy for the students who don't have good grades. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't, because I know what it's like to have people pigeonhole you just because your GPA or just because how you did on an ACT or SAT. When you look at What's going forward? What are some of your immediate goals? Number one, we got to prepare students to be, we got to prepare students to be comp competitive in a global economy. We got students from all over the world trying to come to U.S. Mm. and work. And I tell the students, that's your job competition. Number two, we have to have a better, our unit has to have a better connection to business and industry. There is a tech wave going on in Austin that if we aren't careful, 
a lot of black and brown folk will miss out on. You know what I mean? It's funny how corporations keep moving here and bringing employees here, but we got 51,000 students right here who would love to stay in Austin and work. So, so that's number two. And I would say the third goal is, you know, how do we help people? How do we help community leaders in Austin and across the state solve some of these big problems? That's, that's my three goals. With a staff that you have, is it difficult for them to buy into your vision or see what you see? I think some people, <laughs> yeah. I mean, because I'm a bit, I'm a visionary. You know what I mean. And but here's the thing, John. The job I'm in now, I didn't aspire to. Okay. My thing was, I'm gonna just go to work, and whatever happens, happens. I think people see me as someone who's a visionary. They also see me as someone we're gonna get work done. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, we're gonna we're gonna. You know, we may fail from time to time, but at least we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna try. Mm-hmm. What are some of your other outside interests? Man, I love sports. If I wasn't, if I didn't get this VP role, I was going to go get me a radio show on ESPN. <laughs> <laughs> I really love the intersection of race, sports, and politics. Mm-hmm. This past summer, I was in Aspen speaking to NBA owners, NFL owners, Major League Baseball owners, and European soccer owners about the Colin Kaepernick stuff. They mm-hmm. wanted some advice on it. And so I just love talking about it. And so that that's my, whenever I'm done being a VP, man, I'm going to get me a radio show. And we're going to talk about race and politics, all day, race, sport and politics all day. Yeah. Any involvement with community organizations? Yeah, I'm, I'm a board chair of the Austin Area Urban League. And, you know, we have a new CEO, Quincy Dunlap, young brother from uh, St. Louis, just came from New York City. I mean, one thing I think we can do it in my role at UT, we can try to connect all the nonprofit leaders together mm-hmm. and maybe try to help you know, try to help them build capacity because, you know, a lot of us are asking <laughs> the same people for money, you know, right. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. So how do we move toward a collective impact model where we're working together and not working, you know, and not working against each other? What do you see the program and yourself five, no, 10 years from now, if you stay that long? I don't know. I mean, the whole definition of diversity mm-hmm. is changing. changing. Okay. You, you know what I mean? It, it's, mm-hmm. it's changing. I tell people, so our division when Dr. was built in 2007 when Dr. Vincent was here, so our division is really built, John, on a 2006 model. Okay. The challenge for me is how do I how do I reconstruct the division to be built on a 2025 model? So the challenge is we got to build it for the future needs mm-hmm. and not for needs in the past. So I don't know, man, but it's going to be fun. It's going to be a good ride. Do you think society gets it as far as diversity, understanding that that needs to take place? Not at all. If we're going to move forward? Not at all. Because what most people think of <laughs> diversity Particularly if you're not black or Latino, okay. most people think of diversity as them losing something. Okay. And so it's funny when I teach my MBA class and I got all these students that want to go work on Wall Street, I don't sell them on diversity as this is something they need to embrace for just for moral purposes. Mm-hmm. It's aspirational to them. I like, okay, you may not like Black Lives Matter. You may not like somebody in a gay marriage, but what if you at that Wall Street firm and the person making the most money is gay? Or what, or what if what if your boss, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, at Wells Fargo or Bank of America walks in with a Black Lives Matter t-shirt on? You gonna quit? And so my challenge to them is that you don't have to agree with people's lifestyle, you don't have to like them, but you gotta respect everybody and respect their humanity. Okay. Any final comments, Dr. Moore? No, man, this is fun. Yeah, man, you, you may want to go to ESPN and get me a show. <laughs> <laughs> but appreciate your dedication to this craft over the years. You know, well, I think you. black media um, is, uh, we don't have that many black media outlets anymore and so we appreciate the work you've done since since 1974 i believe all right yep. you're right dr leonard n moore vice president for diversity and community engagement and professor of history at the university of texas at austin if you have questions comments or suggestions as to future in black america programs 
Email us at inblackamerica at kut.org. Also, let us know what radio station you heard is over. Remember to like us on Facebook and to follow us on Twitter. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station or of the University of Texas at Austin. You can hear previous programs online at kut.org. Until we have the opportunity again for technical producer David Alvarez, I'm Johnny O'Hanson, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. Please join us again next week. CD copies of this program are available and may be purchased by writing In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. That's In Black America CDs, KUT Radio, 300 West Dean Keaton Boulevard, Austin, Texas, 78712. This has been a production of KUT Radio.